Father God, thank you for the chance to study your word this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that um, we would heed Peter's words here thoroughly. Uh, Father, we would apply it with clarity. Um, Father, that you'd give us the spirit to understand it and to, um, to grow where we need to grow, Father, to honor you in the ways that we should honor you in light of this passage. Father, every word that we come to in your holy word, Father, we find that there are many ways in our lives in which it speaks to. And so often we just brush across it. May that not be so this morning. Father, for your glory, ultimately, for our good, it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We start with this question, what does it take to flourish in the midst of the harsh realities of life? (coughs) What does it take to flourish in the midst of the harsh realities of life? That's in part, what Peter is after in this book. He's boiling, it's in a sense, here we come to the last couple weeks of 1 Peter. After these couple weeks, we'll be in a couple probably random but intentional passages. Uh, And then we'll move into a series that's appropriate for, Lord willing, the merging of our two churches. And then finally, the fall, we'll be in 1 Peter I'm sorry, First Peter, First John. For now, Peter is wrapping up this letter, and, and with any letter, oftentimes a, a good writer will start to, to kind of boil some things down, kind of simplify and summarize some things down into what, he, what does he want us to walk away with? What, is he, what has he been after this whole time? And I think in many ways what we see here at the end of First Peter is that he is after What does this grand life look like for us to live even in the midst of suffering? What's it look like to live well for God's glory and for our good in the midst of the harsh realities of life? I don't think Peter's talking about or aiming, I don't think the scriptures are ever aiming at just simply surviving as a Christian or simply being a good Christian but instead about flourishing, about living each day to the fullest measure of which God has called us to, or in a sense having the good life in part now, or enjoying the life that God has designed for us now, living each moment to the glory of God and delighting in Him, or glorifying God in everything and in every way, both with our hands, our minds and with our hearts, especially in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the harsh realities of life. I think part of the problem, though, is that most of us spend all of our time and energy trying to secure some very small, pathetic vision of what the good life should look like, the way we define life as being acceptable, the dream life that you and I have. But we're not called to that. 
We're called to something bigger, something more grand, something that actually can withstand the harsh realities of life, something that can be flourishing even in the midst of difficulty. And so Peter has been working us through how to live in the harsh realities of life, and he's going to summarize some things for us in this last chapter, largely starting with last week. Peter exhorts the elders to lead, to pick up where Rusty kind of left off last week. He exhorts the elders to lead, and Rusty worked through what that looked like last week, and now Peter's going to talk about our response then to the leading that the elders are called to in the midst of the church, in the midst of suffering. So we're suffering, here's the church, you have elders in the church, now what's our response? And and I genuinely mean our response because I too am a member like you and I'm called to walk similarly to you with the elders as well. So we're coming off the heels of basically Peter saying, elders shepherd the flock, it looks this way. And then he ends in verse 5 where he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on one of the biggest implications of this book. It's not explicitly said. That's why I said it's an implication. But it's an implication of the overarching narrative of this book, the overarching theme of this book. And that is this. Life is hard. Everything about it is a challenge. And he's about to say in the next couple verses that in the midst of the harsh realities of life, that it's actually dangerous, that there's a lion seeking to devour you. And then he just exhorted the elders to do specific jobs, that they have a specific role in the midst of that kind of life. And the implication is this, that you need elders, that you actually cannot live life without them. It's too dangerous. You cannot live life without it. That you can't make major decisions without them. It's too dangerous. That you can't protect yourself even from yourself. It's too dangerous. You're not capable. I'm not capable. You don't have marriage all figured out. You and I don't know what it looks like to thrive and are able to do it on our own, to thrive in relationships and in our careers and whatever the case is, as a Christian, in the midst of the harsh realities of life, we don't have parenting figured out. We don't know the depth of the sin in our heart and the root at which it, the roots of which have been planted deep within our wicked hearts. We don't know the extent of that. We can't accurately pick out the fruit that is good and that is bad that's coming from this evil heart that I have. We need help. It's too dangerous. It's 
Now, I know, and some of you, I mean, I think it would be naive if we didn't admit that some of us, some pride just welled up. Matter of fact, I picked the list and I worded the list to, to help turn up the heat for maybe even some of you to sit there with this moment and go, well, no, 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 wait a second, Pastor, I'm good. <clears throat> no, I'm good. And this pride just comes up. And I mean, even as I'm thinking about these words, I'm like, oh, I, no, no, I'm good. I, I don't want this. I, no, I'm fine. I can figure this out on my own. And that's why Peter says what he says in verse 5. He says, younger, meaning those younger in spiritual standing. That's the idea here. A.K.A. coming off the heels of this passage of exhorting the elders, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, a.k.a. those who are not pastors. And he says this, listen, he says, clothe yourselves. He says, put on humility toward one another. Now he's saying there's this, it's this active pursuit of putting on humility is the idea. But don't mistake this, it's not an option. This is not a, you should do this some days, or you should try to do this when you can. No, if you're a follower of Jesus, you put on this. But he's saying there's an active putting on here. This is something you have to pursue. It won't just happen to you, but it's also no choice. Now, this is true humility as opposed to a contrived, self-degrading humiliation. Instead, this is one, this humility is something that flows from recognizing, hear me clearly, from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. Let me say that again. True humility, as opposed to a contrived, self-degrading humiliation, flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy, in God's kingdom. With such humility, one is freed from attempts to gain things like power or prestige or to be heard one is freed from the pain of self-reliance and the destruction that it fosters. Humility expresses itself in the willingness to serve others even beyond one's self-interest. And humility looks like seeking submission, dependence. It looks like meekness. This way of living really is the wisest way to live. I know we don't think that that's the case. We think that the wisest way to live is to make sure I get what I want. Because what I want is the wisest. Now, here's the deal. Here's the, listen to me. None of us would agree with that statement. Not a single one of us in this, in this room would say, 
I live thinking my way is the wisest way, and so I make sure that I get it, and that's the best way to live. None of us would agree with that statement. And yet, all of us this week will make decisions and live like we believe that to be true. All of us. But listen to the passage. Listen to what he says. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you understand the exhortation there? Do you understand the, the, the uh, dare I say, threat there? God's, he, Peter said, God says to you and I that if I live this way, that God himself will act in opposition to me and my plans. Every bit of it. Now sometimes that opposition is by him saying, no, you can go no further. I'm going to wipe this plan out and show you the destruction that it is. Sometimes it's God saying, you know what? I'm going to let you have your plan so that you can experience the destruction and the lifelessness and the fruitlessness that it leads to. So, again, just because your plans are going the way they should be going, at least the way you think they should be going, don't, don't think that God's not necessarily in opposition to it. His opposition may just not look the way you have put His opposition into a box and said it has to look like. An open door is not always God opening it. He said, God opposes the proud. So you, in the midst of, I mean, think about the context here. You, in the midst of suffering, potentially about to lose your life, you can't live life without the leadership of elders in your life. And by the way, if you are prideful in that context, I know you're suffering, but listen, if you're prideful in that context, God's going to oppose you. I mean, those are strong words from Peter. Many of us have lived in the fruit of God's opposition to our pride for far too long. You know, one thing I've learned over the years at Renovation, and I'm thankful to the Lord for this, it's been painful. But extremely prideful people don't tend to last long at this church. Or if they do, they, they are undercover and hiding, and we just can't find them yet. Here's why. I think because the heat is so hot here, and I thank the Lord for that, that the heat of sanctification is hot. And because pride is strongly opposed by God and in this place. But don't miss the last phrase that he says, but God gives grace to the humble, meaning everything that you need, all of his provision, things that you don't deserve, they're yours if the path of humility is the one you choose. And Peter says, put this on, put it on. It's almost like an, uh, an illusion, uh, it's like a uh, I don't think he's doing this, but you got Peter over here, or Paul, who's saying, put on this armor and put on this clothes. It's like Peter is saying, you know, put on this humility. It's what's best for you. It's what's good for your life. It will protect you. It leads to God's grace. 
put it on. It's the best place to be. So, what does, that leads us right into verse 6, where we'll, 6 and, and following, where we'll spend the rest of our time. What does then this humble flourishing look like in the midst of harsh realities? How do, we, how do we do that? How do we live in a way that produces and creates an opportunity for us to flourish? And then what does that look like? We're going to try to answer those two questions as we go. The first one is this. We must live knowing your position, knowing our position. Another pastor put it a little less kindly, I thought. He said, know your place. <clears throat> know your place. I was trying to be a little more kind. If you prefer know your place, and that speaks to your heart, then you can write know your place. How do we, how do we get to this life of flourishing? How do we get to this life of flourishing in the midst of harsh realities? First of all, by knowing your position. He says in verse 6, so he just got done talking about all this humility stuff in chapter 5, verse 5. Now in verse 6, again he says, humble yourselves. If you didn't hear me the first time, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now listen, we really struggle with this. I want to press in some more here. We really struggle. We all consider ourselves, <clears throat> to quote somebody else, self-sovereigns. We talk about that a lot in parenting classes, how our children uh, tend to view themselves, even as infants, it seems like, as little self-sovereigns. Like, they are God. They know what's best. And if you don't bow to my every wish, mom and dad, then I'm going to let you have it, Right? They're these little monarchs that think that they are in control and the boss of everything. And the reality is, is it doesn't stop at age 4, 5, 6, 20, 25, 35, 45, 65, or 85. It continues throughout the entire life until we see his face and realize we don't deserve to be the monarch of our lives. We don't deserve to be the self sovereign, but we continue to struggle this. We want to be in charge. We want to be at the forefront. We want our way. We want our opinions to be heard. We want to make things about us. It's not just our children who struggle with this. You want to know what's really wrong with a prideful person, which, by the way, is all of us, is that we don't want to be under the mighty hand of God. When I'm acting in pride, it's not just I'm thinking too highly of myself, although that's part of it. It is also I am thinking in a blasphemous way about God. Do you understand? Like When we say this about ourselves, that I'm awesome, that my way is the wisest way, we're also saying, speaking blasphemy about God, saying His way isn't the best way, He isn't the wisest. Right? We're saying the same thing, we're saying both things at the same time. So a prideful person, I mean, and listen, this is, this is me too, I have moments of pride as well. When you're struggling with pride, we don't want to be under the mighty hand of God. And listen, you and I will not and cannot flourish 
when you and I place ourselves at the center of the universe. In that moment when I'm interacting with my child, if I'm at the center of the universe, I'm not going to flourish and they're not going to flourish. In the moment with my spouse or in the moment with my coworker, in the moment when I'm sitting listening to a sermon, in the moment I'm voting for something with the church, in the moment that I'm involved in a merger, whatever the situation is, the moment I put myself at the center of the universe, you and I destroy our chances of flourishing. And what we don't realize is this too. When you and I put ourselves at the center of the universe, we also hinder the flourishing of those around us too. This past week, I Couple, I don't know, in the past couple weeks, I watched uh, a situation where a wife did something, and this again, but this for the record, it's not a member of our church, did something that's just sinful. It might look a little harmless, but the motivation behind it, it just, it just was sinful. Should not have done this. And I know enough about the situation to know that there were seeds of evil planted in her heart from her husband years ago that have taken root and produced this sinfulness in her life now three, four, five years later. This putting, the husband putting himself at the center of the universe in their relationship and in his life has now fruited in his wife's life. In a bit, we're going to talk about being sober-minded. Like part of being sober-minded is realizing, you know what, when I say things, they could take root in someone's life, and I could be an aid or a help in the sin of someone else's life. So putting ourselves at the center of the universe, let me exhort you on something that's very prevalent and very applicable to our current moment. As you process through the idea of our two churches merging, I want to ask you this question. Are you making it about you? Now listen, it doesn't matter whether you're coming out on the end of it going, you know, I'm in support of this, or you could come out on the end of it and say, no, I'm not in support of this. I don't care what the conclusion is. You could get there the same way. Am I making it about me? Am I thinking about it as it relates to me? Am I thinking about it as it relates to my family? Am I thinking about it as it relates to my preferences? Am I thinking about it as it relates to what I want three years from now? Am I thinking about it in terms of the circumstances of my life? Is, is that all that I'm doing? Because if that's the case, you've put yourself at the center of the universe, and the chances of flourishing for you and your family are slim to none. Instead, humble yourselves and place yourself under the mighty hand of God. How would that look in this situation? It would look like thinking about what we're about to do and decide as it relates to God. 
as it relates to his desires, his kingdom, what's best for the advancement of the gospel, what's best for the good of the lost, what's best for those things, what's best for the church members that are around me. Placing ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Or in suffering, let's give me another example. In suffering, are you only thinking about your suffering as it relates to you? About how you can't do what you want to do, or how people won't view you the way you want them to view you, or how life is just hard. And, and, and not that we can't think about those things, but the issue is, are those the overwhelming, driving considerations within our hearts? Is that the default? Like when you have nothing to prick your heart and guide your heart in a particular direction, does it land automatically in the spot of... How does life relate to me? We need the Spirit to help us not think about life in such a prideful way, but in a humble way, think about life as it relates to God and His kingdom and His way. You and I will never flourish as long as our greatest consideration is generally ourselves. even in the midst of suffering. So what does humility look like? Very quickly, placing yourself under God's mighty hand. Humility looks like, and I'll give you a couple things here. One is trusting that God's wisdom is better than your own. Trusting that God's wisdom is better than your own. I would encourage you to think about the ways in which God gives wisdom. Because here's the danger I think a lot of us fall into. Well, I'm going to go sit down in my little quiet place and I'm going to pray and magically God's going to give me all the wisdom that I could ever need right now. How do you know it's God's wisdom? And not just the evil desires of your heart fruiting in going this direction with life. How do you know? How do you know? Oh, the Spirit told me. How do you know? How do you know the food you ate for lunch wasn't just fantastic and your endorphins were high and you're feeling good about life right about then? Or you're on a sugar high. I mean, I can pray about something and feel one way about it in the morning at 10 o'clock after having a good breakfast and feel completely different about it at 2 o'clock when all the sugar and caffeine's worn off and think that it's just two different spirits speaking to me. <clears throat> How do you know? Right? I, I, a couple, couple quick answers to that, right? The elders over you, the Word of God, the community of followers of Christ around you, particularly the ones that are willing to tell you what you don't want to hear. There'd be three great places to go. It's funny how we avoid those things, though when we're looking for a particular answer, instead of placing ourselves under, genuinely, the mighty hand of God. Listen, you can pray all you want and still be placing yourself under what you think is your own mighty hand. Trusting that God's wisdom is better than your own. Right? We struggle, though, because we think that our way is better than our own. Here would be a good test. <clears throat> Look at how much you grumble. 
if you grumble a lot, well, if you grumble at all, it's because you think your way is better than God's way, okay? Whether you grumble to yourself or you grumble to another person in the church or whatever, if you grumble, it's because you think your way is better than God's way. It's as simple as that. You trust your wisdom. Remember what we said. You trust your wisdom over and above God's wisdom. I mean, again, think about the blasphemy there. Instead, humility looks like joyfully embracing God's wisdom as better than your own. Listen, a humble person can go, Lord, I trust you. I don't particularly like this thing, but I know it's for my good, and I know your ways are better than mine. I trust you. That's what Jesus did in the garden, right? God, if, if, if I could avoid suffering the full cup of your wrath, please let me do so. But I trust your way above my own. I trust you in this moment more than anything. Number two, so trusting that God's wisdom is better than your own. Two, trusting God's sovereignty is better than your own. Like what one pastor said, you know, a humble person believes there is a God who has become your father by Christ and rules over all things for your good. It's not just he's in control over all things, but that he's my father. And my father only does what's good for his glory and good for my flourishing. And he is sovereign over everything. I'm not. Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, key phrase there, all things work together for good. Listen, for those who love God, in those moments, though, you could be loving yourself more because you think your plan, your sovereignty, your wisdom is better. And listen, in those moments, God's still going to work it for your good, but it's not necessarily going to go the path you want it to go. For those who are called according to his purpose, he's our father. Like, do you understand what this means? Every situation, every relationship, every circumstance, even the ones that aren't going your way, that humility looks like trusting God's power to control is better than yours. This means trust the authority that he's put over you in whatever arena of life that he finds yourself, that you, that you find yourself. It means trusting and following and, lo- and knowing this, That no matter what is happening, every moment, even the broken ones, that he is sovereign over it, but not just sovereign over it, but that he is your father and is working it for your good. No matter what it is. No matter how little it is. No matter if the other people around you don't understand. He is your father. He loves you, and He is working all things for your good. Living that kind of humble life, knowing your place is a blessing and a reward. It's living the way we were meant to live. It's living out our full humanity. You understand, like, living in humility is living to the fullness. The way we were created to live. 
We were created to live in explicit and clear, moment-by-moment dependence on God. This is the good life. Like what one pastor said, he said this, it's actually true, the meek will inherit the earth. Not the prideful. Not the ones who make sure their voice is heard. Not the ones who force themselves into situations. Not the ones who manipulate life. Not the ones who are always scheming to get things to go the way they want them to go. Not the ones who always think their wisdom is better than everybody else's wisdom or their way is the best way. The meek inherit the earth. Next, a life of flourishing takes knowing that you are in God's care. Knowing that you're in God's care. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on Him. I don't know how many of you recognize this or see this or realize this, but Anxiety and fear and such are some of the greatest causes of paralysis and insular living there is. Isolated living. Anxiety, listen, anxiety can be surrounded by a myriad of circumstances. Social fears, career, finances, church mergers. Anxiety can fruit in many different ways. Depression, Isolation, gossip, grumbling. Anxiety can look, it can fruit, it can take the form of different ways and different things. And listen, we all struggle with anxiety. I don't know if you realize that. We all struggle with anxiety and fear. This is not just, okay, for those who go get counseling about anxiety, here's a verse for you from 1 Peter. Now, this is a, from 1 Peter 5, 7 to all of us. I don't know if you know, I, most people would not consider me a, a very anxious person, but we were driving down the road on our way back from Michigan yesterday, and Sarah and I were talking, and we were talking just about one of the areas in which I struggle with a measure of anxiety. We all struggle with anxiety, but listen, your anxiety, your fear isn't there because of your circumstances. Our anxiety and all of its fruit is present because we struggle to believe that the Lord cares for you. It's when I f- begin to forget that. Anxiety, what it does, it takes us into this real tiny little world. It moves our eyes inward. It takes your actions, your words, into self-protect mode, if you will. But Peter reminds us here, listen, he doesn't just say, listen, he doesn't just say, don't be anxious. Stop it. Stop it, you. Don't be anxious anymore. That's not very Christian-like. What's he say? Give your anxieties to him because he cares. Peter recognizes that there's this connection between anxiety and struggling to believe that he cares. Struggling to know and hold fast to the promise that he cares. 
I'm anxious right now because I think I care more than God does. I'm anxious because I care more about this than anyone else does. Listen, no one cares for anything more than God does. And no one cares for you, including yourself, more than God does. You can cast your anxieties on Him. You see how that would be a key phrase to, to walking humbly? Right? Because in pride, I think I care more than anybody else does. But if I'm going to be humble and entrust myself to someone else, that's going to give great opportunity for anxiety, isn't it? When I'm entrusting myself to other people, entrusting myself to a plan that I don't get to control, anxiety. I mean, I know for some of you right now, you're like, right? Like, I can't breathe. The fact that I couldn't be in control, I can't breathe. Give it to him. He cares for you. Does he not care for you in the sovereign planning of something you simply don't like? Like, you ever get bent out of shape about something? Ah, you know, I'm just a little upset about that. I'm just a little frustrated about that, right? You ever do that? Anybody? (laughs) Cast your anxieties on him. Even the moment that I'm just a little bent out of shape about this, right? Cast your anxieties on him. He cares more about that than you do. He cares for you. He cares about the outcome for you. He cares about the moments of your walking through it. Listen, if you can't flourish with joy through something you simply don't like, how will we ever flourish in the Lord through suffering? The Lord cares for you. He dealt with your deepest need, even laying his life down for you. If you believe that to be true, if you believe that he cared for you in your deepest need, even to the point of death on a cross, then why would you ever struggle to believe that he cares for you in this need over here? Right? You see how the gospel, like the core tenets of the gospel and the death of Christ on the cross for us and our deepest problem shines light, gives freedom, gives joy, flourishing even in the moments of life following the time God saved us. Listen, a life of flourishing the harsh realities of life also takes knowing that life is dangerous. Knowing that life is dangerous. Knowing your place, knowing that God cares, knowing that life is dangerous. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what Peter is saying, be clear-minded and on alert. Be clear-minded and on alert when you get home in the evening. Be clear-minded and be on alert when you go to church. Be clear-minded. When? Always. Be clear-minded. Be alert. Be clear-minded. 
Be alert. Listen, in five minutes when I'm still preaching, be clear-minded and be alert. When you're on your way home, be clear-minded. Be alert. When you're getting ready to go to bed, be clear-minded. Be alert. Be free. Here's, a, here's another way to put it. Be free from confusion and driving passions. That's the antithesis to Peter's command. It's easy. So, like this, There's two things in this passage. Are sober-minded in watchfulness and the lion that's seeking to devour. So no matter what situation you're in, whether it's in a conversation at DNA, it's a conversation with your spouse, your best friend, etc. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Recognize that you likely have confusion and driving passions at war within you. No matter what the situation is. No matter how happy you are coming into the situation. Listen, some of us sin the most when we come into the situation with the happiness that we think we have. Why? Because we're, in those moments, probably not sober-minded and alert we're just happy-go-lucky, and we come in, and then we say and do things, or we don't respond the way we should. We always struggle with the passion to be right, the passion to look righteous, the passion to protect ourselves, the passion to be heard, because we're the awesome one. And Peter's saying, stop it. Don't you understand, your enemy is living and active and trying to eat you alive. He knows where your weak spots are. Do you, understand, do you know where your weak spots are? Do you, do you understand like the whole source idolatry we talk about, like comfort and control and uh, comfort, control, affirmation, power. There we go, I had to think through them. Those are just simply an exercise in helping us know our weak spots. It's an exercise in helping us know where is, if, the, if Satan's going to attack, where's he going to get after? When I walk into a situation, how can I be aware of the areas in which I am tempted to sin? Listen, I, I am one of those ones who always thinks his opinion is right and always thinks he needs to be heard. So I, I'm preaching to myself in half the sermon, I hope you know. So when I walk into a situation, I have to consciously go, that's a weak spot of mine. How do I walk in repentance of that sin in my heart and my mind? Well, sometimes it means I just, whether my opinion is right or not, sometimes I need to withhold it. I need to step back. I need to give room for other people to, to speak and to work through things. And i got to be careful. But Peter is saying there's a lion. He knows where our weak spots are. Listen, there are so many times pastorally. I, I, this is one of the struggles. Some of you might understand, maybe not, but... You watch people's actions, watch people's comments, you hear about people's comments, people's actions, so on and so forth. And so many times, it just seems so apparent, so clear, that the lion has their paw 
right on that person's soul. And the struggle is, how do you, as a shepherd, how do you address it? How do you get after it? How do you protect them? A lot of times they don't realize the Paul's there. Listen, the enemy is seeking to devour you. We would all be wise to ask those who are willing to tell us the truth where they see the Paul of the lion pressing in on our lives. Where is he just hiding right around the corner from me that I can't see, but you can? Where is he eating part of my life and flourishing that I just can't see? Like that limb that's gone numb. It's being gnawed on and we don't realize it. Listen, I don't know if we as a church believe that the devil is real. That evil is real. We should enter into conversations, enter into situations, praying and even saying, based on the circumstances, I understand that my sin is likely to look this way. That Satan might attack me this way. Lord, please protect me from my sin and the lion seeking to devour me. Right? That would be an example of sober-mindedness. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Be always on guard. Next, resist Satan all the time. Resist Satan all the time. Verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Notice the two things that Peter couples here. Resist him and stand firm. Resist him and stand firm. First of all, resist him. Peter knows that we're going to have to actively resist the work of Satan. That we'll have to resist the lies he says. Lies like, I'm the most gracious one. Goodness is only found here in this place of life apart from God. I will only be happy if I can get this. My ways, the best way. It's tempting to be proud and think the world should dance around us. It's tempting to not trust in the ways God has called us to trust. It's tempting to think that we're the sovereign ones, the most wise ones. It's tempting to think these things. And Peter knows that in moments of trial, that we become very spiritually vulnerable. Like when the heat gets turned up, that we get spiritually vulnerable. And that's why he says, resist him. And he says, stand firm. I get it. You're a little shaky right now. Like, life is hard. It's challenging. Harsh realities all around you. And you're very tempted to lean into yourself, to trust in your own ways, in your own understanding. You're very, t- I see it, I see it, but don't do it. Stand firm. Resist him. 
Believe what you have said that you believe and cling to the promises you've read. Resist Him and stand firm. Don't bow down to the lies of Satan. It's like, it's, listen, it's like Peter's taking us back to the garden. It's like he's saying, listen, the serpent is always near. He's always near. He's slithering around you. He is in the garden waiting, looking, seeking to devour you. But you must resist him always. And in that moment when he comes speaking lies about God, you must stand firm in what God has said. You must stake your life on the wisdom and the words of God. Which implies you got to know his words and you got to know how to apply them. You know, it's part of why DNA in our church is so costly. Because it's in those moments where my knowing his words and my applying of his words gets exposed. And it's in those moments where we're tempted. I mean, this is beyond this, but the heat is really hot in there. And it's in those moments that you go, I'm tempted to trust the lies of Satan, but I need to stand firm. It's good for my soul to be put out on the operating table sometimes. In fact, I think the writer of Hebrews would say daily, in chapter 3. So lastly, Peter understands that we were created to dwell with others and that when we become isolated from others, there is also a great danger. That's why he says here, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's what Peter's saying. Know this. Your suffering is normal. It's not the exception to the situation. You don't fit the exception. Your situation is not 100% unique. There is suffering throughout the world. You are not alone. Your situation is not so unique that no one could ever relate to you. Or that no one could speak the truth of God's word into your life. Or your suffering is, is not beyond the aid and the help of the body of Christ by the power of God in your life. You're not alone. And he's saying if you stand for Christ in a culture that has rejected him, suffering will be something that you experience. The last thing, if we are to flourish through the harsh realities of life, we must live knowing that God will finish His work in His people by His grace. That God will finish His work in His people by His grace. Look at verse 10. I love, I love Peter's pastoral language here. And after you have suffered a little while, Right? A little while. Well, that little while, you understand that little while could mean like your entire life. It doesn't mean after you have suffered for a few days. Or after you have suffered through this little trial. 
after you have suffered a little while, and that could be your entire life. After you have suffered a while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered a little while, Paul, or part, sorry, Peter affirms that suffering is going to be a part of the journey. It just is. That's God's good design, His plan. It's the outworking of His wisdom and His sovereignty. And no effort on your part can stop it. This is God's plan. Even if you run from suffering, you will likely suffer at the hands of your own evil thoughts and deeds in running. Trying to isolate ourselves from it. And it's in this context that Peter says, the Lord will not turn from His grace. Did you hear that? What are we tempted to believe in that moment? God's grace is not mine to be had. God's grace is nowhere to be found. How am I going to get through this situation is another way for saying God's grace isn't sufficient. How am I ever going to make it? Life is overcoming me. Is another way of saying God will not finish His work by His grace. Listen, His steady hand of grace will continue its transforming work. Let me repeat that if you want to write down something. His steady hands of grace will continue its transform, their transforming work. Nothing can stop God's gracious work. That's why, that's why it's called grace. Because what we deserve is for it to stop, right? But it's grace and it's been paid for by somebody else. But listen, he's not just, here, listen to what Peter is saying. He's not just the God who is gracious. He says he is the God of all grace. The God of all grace, meaning all grace is from Him. He's the author of all grace. He's the owner of all grace. He is the sovereign over all grace. He alone dispenses grace. And listen, even with suffering, even choosing the path of meekness, the path of dying to self, the path of sacrifice for the good of others, the path of naming your opinions as inferior to God's, the path of protecting against bitterness, the path, the path of fighting for unity even at the expense of self, the path of choosing what is good for others and not just for yourself, even with all those struggles, even with all the pain that might come about by choosing the path of faithfulness, no matter what the situation is, God's grace is steady. And God's grace is sure. He will not stop His work until His work is done. Praise God. You see, if we spend all of 
our life, trying to strengthen our plans, establish our opinions, confirm our desires and identity, restore order to our plans and the way we think life should go, then we are on our own in the misery that we create. But after you have suffered, he says, implying this, the suffering is because of faithfulness to God. Then He will restore you. He will make you whole. He will confirm and strengthen you. He will give you the perseverance needed to the end. He is the one who will establish you like a tree planted firmly next to water. I thank God that even in those moments where we try to establish our own plans, we try to confirm our own desires and identity, That by His grace, He opposes the proud. And if you're a child of His, He draws you back to Himself by His grace. Listen, Jesus was the humble one. Jesus was the meek one. He was the one who said, Lord, Father, I trust You. He is the one who flourished in the midst of the harsh realities of life even to the end even through the wrath of Almighty God for you and for me. You and I can flourish through the harsh realities of life when we know our position. When we know that He cares. When we live like we realize and know that life is dangerous. When we, by His power and grace, resist Satan, and when we live knowing, clinging to, begging God for a greater grasp upon the truth that He will finish the work He started in you by His grace, it's then, it's then that we can say with Peter in verse 11, him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, give us, give us the grace to, to see this. Father, that you, that you care. Father, that you're a father who cares. That being in the place of humble, submissive dependence under you is the place to be. It's the safe place to be. Father, give us the eyes and the alertness to see that life is dangerous. That there's a lion seeking to devour us, to devour our family, to devour our kids, to devour our friends, to devour our neighbors. Give us the eyes to see this and the will to act. But Father, may we at the root of it all believe that the God of all grace has secured this grace for us through the blood of His own Son. And that if we believe that this grace is sufficient, that it will finish the work and that it is ours. 
that we could live as humble people, sober-minded and alert, joyful and flourishing no matter the circumstances. Father, please, by your grace, give us the ability to believe, to have faith, to grasp and not let go of these truths for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.